We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke. We are at the end of chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 14. And most of this passage is a, uh, a parable. Uh, it's popularly known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And um, it's, it's the last in a series of parables that have all been getting at some of the same ideas. In fact, I, I you know, the term I found myself using this week is Jesus is parable stacking. He's, he's stacking one story on top of another on top of another to try to prove some big important points. And, uh, and I think this is sort of the climactic parable of the stack. So this is Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 14. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and ridiculed him. But Jesus said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in men's eyes, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly prized among men is utterly detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were in force until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is urged to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tiny stroke of a letter in the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery. And the one who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. But at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus whose body was covered with sores, who longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. In addition, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, as he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. So he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in anguish in this fire. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus likewise bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. So the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, to warn them so that they don't come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. They must respond to them. Then the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He replied to him, If they do not respond to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, uh, as we are silent together, would you speak to us about your word?
Thank you, Lord, for the ways that you speak to us. Seal what you have spoken in our hearts and in our minds. And now open us up to hear you speak uh, again, Lord, as a body. We submit ourselves to your word and we ask that you would use it to refine us and draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in my travels uh, in the Christian world as a pastor, a teacher, you know, going through school, this passage uh, comes up a lot, but it comes up in a specific context. Anytime this story of the, the rich man and Lazarus and what transpires between them comes up, it usually, in my experience, comes up when people are trying to answer questions about hell and heaven, but particularly hell. What happens with hell? What, what, how do we understand it? What do, what do people see and experience? And, and so a lot of people say, well, Jesus tells a story where he explains hell. So let's go to that and use that as the way to understand it. So if you're reading through a systematic theology book, you're going to find references to this passage when it's trying to explain our eternal destiny and the eternal reward and eternal punishment. And I am, I am not convinced that that's the point of this story. In fact, if what I said at the beginning is true, that Jesus has been parable stacking, he's been stacking one story on top of another, then maybe we need to look a little bit deeper to understand what he is saying. I think this parable is a dire, a severe warning about the infinite danger of self-justification. That's what I think it's about. So I'll just show you my cards at the very beginning. That's how Jesus starts this section. The Pharisees are mocking him for his other stories. And then Jesus says, wait, you guys are the ones who are justifying yourselves in men's eyes. And unfortunately, they're not alone, those who justify themselves in men's eyes. So we're going to look at this story through the lens of self-justification today. And, and maybe you'll be convinced that that's what it's about, and, and maybe not, and we can have a great talk about it some other time. But we're going to look at self-justification through this story in five ways. The norm of self-justification, the challenge, the exposure, the chasm, and the bridge. The norm, the challenge, the exposure, exposure the chasm, and the bridge. Okay, the, the norm. Here, here's what I mean when I say the norm. Self-justification is the norm. It is the way people operate with one another. I mean, in this passage, Jesus has been in a back and forth with the Pharisees that stretches back at least to chapter 14, where he had dinner at a Pharisee's house, and there was this man with dropsy there. His, his body was quite swollen with fluid, and a thing transpired there. Jesus healed him. That's the thing. And, uh, um, and then Jesus tells this story to them about the messianic banquet, you know, so it is kind of a story about heaven, about what the Jews are looking forward to, the, the banquet of the Messiah, the, the grand victorious 
party, but in that story, um, you know, the wrong people are at the party, and the, the wrong people are, are left out of the party, and, and that's how he begins. And so he's been building this case from there when, when you're like, why are these people at the party and these people not at the party? He's been building a case that the values that the Pharisees have are, are diametrically opposed to the values of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing with him. They're, they're not just opposites. It's not just you switch it uh, you know, upside down and it kind of makes sense that's close. Uh, it's, it's really a different game. I mean, they're playing checkers and he's playing chess. So, so what is the checkers that the Pharisees are, are playing? What's, what's the norm for them? This is their worldview. They, they have a passion to impress God enough that he will restore their people. That's what they long to do. They want to be obedient enough, righteous enough, follow the rules closely enough that God will defeat these pesky Romans and restore their people. And so they value responsibility, rule following, diligent Sabbath observance, etc. Their worldview assumes that God rewards obedient and diligent behavior with safety, health, social benefits, maybe wealth too. It assumes that, you know, people like, you know, sinners and tax collectors, which they notice at the beginning of chapter 15 and start to judge Jesus. Wow, sinners and tax collectors are joining your crew. We don't want to be a part of that. They assume that if something bad happens in the life of a sinner and tax collector, it's a, it's a just punishment. They had it coming to them. Therefore, if someone is already experiencing suffering... That's a response to sin, probably. Consider in another gospel, in the gospel of John, this scene where the Pharisees bring a blind man to Jesus. They bring him to Jesus. And they ask him a question that tells us everything about the way they think. They say, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents that he should be born blind? Like, we know it was sin that caused him to be born blind. We're sure of that. We're just not sure whose fault it was. So help us figure out this question. Their assumption, like Job's friends, is that the only reason for suffering is divine judgment. And those ideas, they don't come from nowhere. It, one way of reading through the Old Testament, you'll see it all the time. God, God responds to his people's rebellion with some physical suffering. I mean, consider the plagues against Egypt. It, it particularly, remember what Lazarus, outside of the rich man's house, what he's suffering with? He has sores all over his skin. His body is covered in sores. Well, consider the plagues against Egypt. The sixth plague, the Egyptians break out in boils, painful sores that cover their bodies. They, they can't even leave their bedrooms. It's so painful. The people get out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and Miriam starts uh, grumbling against Moses and she's stricken with leprosy as a result of it. Those of you who are doing our two-year Bible reading plan, we're, we're coming close to the end of year one. 
Um, but just this week, we read this story in 2 Kings chapter 15, where uh, King uh, Amos, Azariah, I almost said Amaziah, that would have been so embarrassing. Um, <laughs> King Azariah, he mostly did what was right in his life, but he failed to eliminate some of the high places where they'd worshipped idols in the kingdom. And so, 2 Kings 15 says, the Lord afflicted the king with an illness. He suffered from a skin disease until the day he died. So the Pharisees' math is pretty straightforward. A disease, especially one that renders you ceremonially unclean, like a skin disease, is a sign of sin. In short, Jesus tells this story and there's this guy covered in sores. We don't know his backstory, but the Pharisees do. He did something. He deserves it. Those silly Pharisees. Why would they think that way? I wonder if any of us have ever used the term, you reap what you sow. We, we might not say suffering is a result of sin, but we tend to tie a lot of suffering, a lot of personal suffering to, to various bad choices, bad habits, bad family, bad money management, a, a bad personality. We tie a lot of stuff to that. To hear this well, friends, we need to assume the position of a Pharisee and of a disciple. What is Jesus trying to say to the Pharisees? The only way we can hear what he's trying to say to the Pharisees is to listen like a disciple who's trying to hear and obey Jesus. But we've got to acknowledge that we have similarities to the Pharisees. Friends, as we go through this, if you can't relate to the Pharisees or the rich man at all, you are probably in grave spiritual danger. So that's the norm of self-justification. The challenge. Let's talk about the challenge. Jesus directly confronts the Pharisees' habit. That's, that's why I went back, you know, before the parable, and we actually had read some of that passage last week, but back to where the Pharisees are mocking Jesus, and then Jesus responds, you are the ones who justify yourselves. He directly challenges it. But all of the stories have been challenging their mindset. I mean, it, it starts out, like I said, in chapter 14, which implied that they are the guests who had better things to do than attend the glamorous party. And then when they complain next about the tax collectors and sinners who are joining Jesus' movement, at the start of chapter 15, Jesus implies, you all are the 99 sheep who there's no party for. You're the nine coins that there's no party about. You're the older brother who won't go in when his younger brother returns home. And you are the dishonest manager, the one who steals from the master twice in order to win some worldly affection. And so they mock him. The Pharisees mock him because his stories are challenging to them. They're challenging their view. They're, uh, they're challenging their norm, their, the way they live, their self-justification. Why do they mock him? Because they have come up with clever interpretations of Scripture that justify their worldview and their behavior. That's what Jesus means when he says you justify yourselves 
in men's eyes. And, and, and he says, look, the law isn't going to disappear just because you monkey with it. But before we get to um, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he says this thing about, you know, the, the law and the prophets were in effect until John. Now the kingdom is being proclaimed. That is just enough to make them really mad, by the way. Here's what he's saying. Hey, remember that guy, John the Baptist, crazy guy in the desert, the one who says that I'm the Messiah and now the kingdom of God is upon you? He was right. I am. The law, that, like, that was a major turning point in spiritual history, so to speak. But even though a new phase of revelation is upon us, that doesn't mean the scriptures are null and void. And to prove it, he gives two examples. He gives this little line about marriage and divorce. And then he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Otherwise, the, the, the line about marriage and divorce, what is it doing there? Doesn't it seem so random? We have uh, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, dishonest manager, some, you know, some detailed stories, and oh, by the way, you know, marriage and divorce. Like, what? Wow, what is happening? Apparently, marriage is a great example. If you study what the Pharisees were doing, what had become norm in the first century, particularly for men with a little bit of social influence, a little bit of social standing, what had become the norm is all sorts of loopholes by which men could easily divorce. You know, the women had no right to, to divorce at the time. You know, only the man, but there were all sorts of reasons. And the rabbis were teaching it. They were explaining how this could happen. They were making it easy for themselves and one another. And, and so Jesus is just baffled by this because, you know, adult, do not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. It's the basics. Like, that, this is an essential. And he says, you, you have created loopholes that allow you to break the seventh commandment. He, he explained the same thing to them about the fifth commandment. You know, a, another place he says, you guys do all this stuff with your tithing. You're, you're giving certain percentages of what you have. And then you're saying that, is, you know, that is in place of what I would use to take care of my aging parents. You're breaking the fifth commandment and justifying it using obscure scripture interpretations. That's what they're doing to justify themselves. And so that leads him to this story about the rich man and Lazarus. And this is the exposure. This is where he exposes self-justification for what it really is. Now, in this story, just notice that these two characters, the rich man and Lazarus, they are exactly opposite in every way. They're exactly opposite. Start with the rich man. I mean, he, he uh, dresses in, in fine clothes. I mean, it, it exaggerates it. It's like this guy is wearing a $5,000 suit just as his casual wear around the house every day. That's who this guy is. And, and, and he is throwing daily parties, daily feasts, daily banquets. And in fact, one commentator notices that the way Jesus says that it is almost, it's a, it's a big hint that this guy doesn't take a break even for the Sabbath. 
And so if you're, if you're a rich man throwing a big party like this and you don't even take a break for the Sabbath, guess what? None of your household staff, a.k.a. the servants, takes a break for the Sabbath either. Ah, breaking the fourth commandment now, by the way. You know, not, not taking any rest. He gets all the rest. They get none of it. So anyway, he's, he's wearing the fine clothes. He's partying every day. He never takes the days off. At, in, in gruesome opposite, we have Lazarus. The rich man's covered in fine clothes. Lazarus, he's covered in sores. The rich man uh, is feasting every day. Lazarus is longing to eat the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. The rich man's having a party every day. Lazarus' only friends are stray dogs who lick his sores. And Tim Keller points out one other opposite. The rich man is anonymous. He's only what he has. Lazarus has a name. He's someone. But Lazarus is covered in sores licked by dogs. Any Pharisee listening, they're picturing Lazarus as someone who, in their worldview, deserves it. Life gave you lemons and you squirted juice in your eye. You've heard the common expression. <laughs> but then they die. They die apparently close to each other and there's a stunning reversal in death. Uh, our, you know, what I read says... He, Lazarus went to Abraham's side. That's Abraham's bosom. That's a, a term for being gathered to your fathers in Old Testament language. It's the chosen people restored to Father Abraham. That's where he is. He is, if he's at Abraham's bosom, he is in the seat of honor at the Messianic banquet. He's leaning his head against the host. That close, that intimate. But the rich man, he's far off. He's in torment. And so but you could make a simple lesson here. Ah, yes. If you're rich, you're going to suffer forever in hell. And if you're poor, you'll be rewarded eventually. It's be rough for people who live in Littleton, guys. <laughs> Globally, we are rich. Extraordinarily. Every one of us. So, okay, that's not the lesson. The lesson is found in what the rich man says. The most details of this story come in the conversation between the rich man and Abraham. All right, so let's pay attention to what happens. The first thing that the rich man does is he cries out, you know, Father Abraham, have Lazarus dip his finger in the water and come to cool my tongue. Now, this is astonishing what is taking place here. You see, the rich man who is now suffering in agony, seeing across apparently a chasm to the party, sees someone who in his mind is far beneath him. And so he doesn't even speak to Lazarus. He speaks to Abraham and says, hey, you, <coughs> you probably don't realize this, but the guy sitting next to you is like less than a servant. So you need to tell him to come and take care of me because I'm somebody. It's astonishing what he is doing. He cannot conceive of a reality in which he is not superior to Lazarus. He has spent his life justifying his comfort 
and excusing his failure to offer Lazarus even his leftovers. In his conception of the world, he's somebody and Lazarus is nobody. And what he aims to do in this moment, if I may steal a phrase from Stephen, is he wants to bring earth to heaven. He wants to bring his experience of life into the afterlife. That's the way he wants it to be. Things before death are the way they should stay forever. In a way, this rich man is refusing to die. He wants to keep life as it was. And it gets worse. When Abraham says no and says the thing about the chasm, look, no, even if we wanted to, we couldn't. You know, kind of what he says. We'll, we'll get back to that. The rich man tries a different tack. Okay, then. Um, uh, send Lazarus on a different errand. <laughs> send him to warn my brothers. I have five brothers. You know, th- I don't want them to end up like me. Send them to warn my brothers. The insinuation is that this suffering he's going through is not his fault. Do you hear that? It, if somebody had come and warned me, I wouldn't be in this bind. But look, I get it. I'll take my lumps. But I, I want you to notice I'm a good guy. Go help out my brothers. Please go warn my brothers. Even though you didn't properly warn me, maybe you can help them out. I'm a decent chap. This is the sin of Adam all over again. When God comes in the garden and they've just eaten the fruit and they're hiding and they realize they're naked and all this stuff. And God says, Adam, what did you do? Adam says, well, this woman that you gave me, it's the same thing. This isn't my fault. Self-justification is happening here. I want you to notice what the rich man doesn't say. He never says, Abraham, let me out of this place. He never says, please, can I come join the party? He certainly never says, wow, I was way wrong in my life. I am sorry. He doesn't say anything along those lines. He says, make him serve me, and it's not my fault. But he doesn't try to leave. Maybe. That's because of the chasm. Abraham says this thing about the chasm. Um, Now, there's a lot of things about this parable that I I think it would be a mistake to read it and to to create a blueprint of heaven and hell. Uh, This would be a weird existence. Um, Just imagine this, you know, if this is how heaven and hell are, then the people at the great messianic banquet can look across the valley and see people in horrific suffering. That's an eternity of living exactly like the rich man lived, where you can look out your window and see someone who's miserable and say, well, at least I'm in the party, you know. That doesn't actually sound that great. Also, there's no other uh, passage that I can think of in all of scripture where Abraham is the spokesperson for heaven. You know, I, the, there's more to this story than the, than, you know, we can't use it and make um, uh, objective details about heaven and hell. It's not supposed to be a literal tour. Abraham says, hey, a chasm has been fixed 
between us. And I found myself wondering, what is that chasm? What is that great distance between Abraham's or Lazarus's existence and the rich man's existence? Hmm. Perhaps you've heard of um, atherosclerosis. You might not know it by that by that term, but it's. Uh, it's a very common thing in humans. It's the hardening of the arteries. And in the hardening of the arteries, that you know, when that starts to happen in your body, all sorts of other physical, uh, physical things are uh, a, a high risk. If you have atherosclerosis and your arteries are hardening, you're, you know, you're you know, a ticking time bomb for a stroke, for a heart attack, and all sorts of other situations. The arteries are hardening. If you don't address it, you're in trouble. I think self-justification is the hardening of our spiritual arteries. We can't overlook it. It's the seed of hell growing inside of us, and it will become, if I may mix my metaphors, the chasm. It will become the great distance between us. Most self-justification feels fairly innocent, you guys. We go through life knowing that we're misunderstood. No one else can get inside your head and know why you did the thing that you did or why you said the thing that you said. And so a lot of us become very talented at explaining ourselves, at saying, yeah, this is what was going on, this is why I did that, and this is why you're actually wrong, even though I seemed wrong in that situation. You know, that we get, many of us get good at that. We grow the talent for that. We need to explain why our behavior was the way it was. Plus, it... In, in plenty of situations, it, it's, it's self-care to, to say, look, I deserve this thing, this, this good thing that I'm having. We, we justify our bad things. We justify our good things. It's, it's a daily talent that we develop. But remember, Jesus started with, you are the ones who justify yourselves in men's eyes. There it is. You are the one who justify yourselves in men's eyes. But God knows your hearts. And this disturbing story is the story of a man who cannot escape from his own self-justification. If you spend your life justifying yourself, you, it, you will, if you train yourself to excuse and defend your selfish choices, you will find in the end that you have lost the ability to turn it off. It's a habit that will become all of who you are. What I hear Jesus saying is that justifying yourself is perhaps the most spiritually dangerous thing that we could do. Perhaps it can happen with anything. Maybe it's not just self-justification. C.S. Lewis certainly th thought so. Um, here's what he writes in Mere Christianity. He, he has similar paragraphs in several books, but here's what he says in Mere Christianity. He says, Christianity asserts that every human being is going to live forever. And this must be either true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable but it might be absolute hell in a million years. 
In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for what it would be. You see, as we give these things space, as we cultivate them as our identity, they become who we are. It, there's a great illustration of it in The Great Divorce. I won't read it to you, but he illustrates this. He depicts a woman, you know, and The Great Divorce is, a, is a, a, an imaginary tour of heaven. A group of people from hell get on a tour bus, and they get to take a tour of heaven. And, and the main character, the narrator, he, he sees this woman who has a lot of justifiable gripes. She's sort of grumbling and complaining about all sorts of things. She's given herself over to grumbling. And his tour guide says, here's the problem. She's grumbled so much that there's not even a grumbler left. She is only a grumble. Herself is gone. She's made herself a human-shaped grumbling machine. That's it. Jesus is making the very same point to the Pharisees. If they habitually justify themselves, whether their love of money or honor or exclusivity or whatever, that justification itself will become their reward. They will have their good things. According to this parable, hell is the perpetual miserable state of defending and justifying yourself. He's living in that forever. You guys, you know. You know, that stinks when, when you're in that spot. That doesn't feel good. Where you're like, well, I, I got to explain to you why I did this. You're at, a, so you're at a relational distance from everyone around you. That's the chasm. But, friends, there's a bridge. There's a bridge. The first part of the bridge is Jesus' overarching statement about all of his, all of his preaching. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. How do you medicate yourself when the pain of sin hits you? That's the question this is inviting us to ask. How do you medicate yourself? Do you explain why you did it? Do you think about your circumstances? Do you think about what you deserved? That's the way we naturally medicate ourselves. That's our normal way of dealing with it. Every moment of sin in our lives, this is a strange thing to say, but every moment of sin is an opportunity to either take a step toward heaven or a step toward hell. Every moment. It's either a moment where we try to bring earth to heaven or we let heaven come to earth. Another word for Self-justification is unrepentance. Unrepentance is another word for Jesus' scary phrase, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Remember he said that's the unforgivable sin? It will never be forgiven. I mean, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said the Spirit's work is to prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Blaspheming the Spirit is rejecting his work. No, you're wrong about sin. You're wrong about righteousness. You're wrong about judgment. It's unrepentance. Jesus' mission is not to rescue people and bring them to heaven. His announcement is that the kingdom of heaven has come, and he's bringing it with him. 
Here it is. Enter into it. He teaches us not, he does not teach us to pray, Lord, make sure as many of us as possible can get to heaven. He teaches us to pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What could that have been in this story? Well, the, the party would have been different. What if before death, the rich man had brought Lazarus into his home and welcomed him at the party? Remember what Jesus told the Pharisee? He said, when you throw a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And when you do that, you are previewing heaven. He would have been getting heaven at the table. In fact, if he had welcomed him as a brother, he would have heaven in his family. There's a random detail in this story. Like, why is it there? This man, the rich man, has five brothers. Is that a random detail? It's just making up a story. Why, why does it matter that the guy has five brothers? Well, five brothers plus the rich man, that's six brothers. Huh. It turns out six is a number of some significance throughout the story of Scripture. Six has been called the number of man. It's the six days when man was created. Six days without the seventh is all work and no rest. It's hell. He's living without the gifts of God in his life. That's biblically speaking what six represents. And if Lazarus is invited into the family, how many brothers are there? Seven. They've entered into the joy of heaven together. Now that may be a crazy interpretation, but I think it's pretty cool. If he brought Lazarus into his home, there'd be seven brothers. When we do that, we bring heaven to earth. I want to steal another phrase, this one from Rosaria Butterfield. She says, when we do things like that, we make enemies neighbors and neighbors family. That's how we bring heaven to earth. We make enemies neighbors and neighbors family. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus does for us. He is the true and better Lazarus. There's this moment in the conversation with Abraham and the rich man where Abraham's response is a little odd. He says, after all, a chasm has been fixed between us, so even if someone wanted to come across to help you, they couldn't. That's interesting. Now, one, one scholar reads that and says, the, the insinuation is that, that Abraham has Lazarus whispering in his ear, like, hey, I know he's being a jerk, but let me bring him some water. Come on. Let me, let me go. La Lazarus is, you know, the, perhaps wanting to go across. That same scholar noticed that Lazarus had a peaceful relationship with dogs. <laughs> you know, I mean, the dogs are his friends, his companions. They're, they're tending to his sores. He, he is this peaceful and patient presence all throughout the story, even though he never says a word. The dogs aren't because he's dirty, it's because he's kind. We don't know Lazarus' history, but his name is the Greek version of a Jewish name, Eliezer. Eliezer, that was Abraham's chief servant, the one who was going to receive all of Abraham's inheritance if Abraham didn't have the promised son that he was waiting for. Eliezer 
is the one who got sort of cut off and left out when Abraham had his kids. And now he's being welcomed back. And his sores, the sores all over his body, they've got to remind us of someone else in the Bible. You know who had this? Job. Lazarus is living Job's life, that gruesome suffering. We find Job after everything goes wrong in his world using shards of pottery to scrape the sores on his body. It's a miserable existence. He's the righteous man who learned the wisdom of God through horrific suffering. Well, Lazarus couldn't cross the chasm, but Jesus could, and he did. Abraham said, no one can come across to warn your brothers. But guess what this story is doing? It's warning the rich man's brothers. Here he is using the story to do the thing that the story says nobody can do. It's amazing. Jesus is giving the gift that nobody thought could be given. Warning the brothers and even suffering at their hands on the hope, on the chance to create an opportunity for them to repent. Because you know what they will see? Someone rise from the dead. They will. And now Jesus has dropped this little splinter into their minds. And maybe, maybe for some of them, it will agitate them enough that when he walks out of his tomb, they turn and enter. He has come across the chasm for us, friends. Though we are caught in a web of self-justification, he is our justifier. All we need to do is repent. Please, I deserve to be here. Let me come across. That's the story Jesus told on the table. He told it on the night that he was betrayed to his enemies so that he could make his enemies' neighbors, and his neighbors' friends. On that night, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He is our justification. Nothing else about our lives will count. And so, come to the table. Lay down your own excuses for yourself. Lay down your own defenses for why you make your selfish choices. It may make you cry. That's okay. (laughs) And receive the gift that he has for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great gifts. Thank you, Lord, that we even though we are more like the rich man, you are inviting us to your bosom that we could lean on your chest at the Last Supper and hear your grace. Lord, thank you for including us at the table. And let us be, Lord, generous as you've been generous towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.